Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. What I think is going to be a pretty cool episode of the Eating Crow podcast. We just talked about this, the famous Dale Dupree on the program today. Dale, welcome. Thanks, Peter. I like the ring to that, but I don't like the things that come along with it. I should start with like two years ago, someone actually asked me, they said, is there a burden? It was like in the 2020 timeframe. They said, is there a burden that you carry because of how famous you've gotten on LinkedIn? I just started laughing. And and the guy said, what's so funny? I said, bro, that's, that's a silly question. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, like what I, what I did, what I do like about the identity of how we look at somebody that's quote unquote famous is that what we're really perceiving in that moment is that they're well known. And I think that that is the perspective that I can buy into the well known aspect, because my mission is to change the world and not just through my own works, but through instilling in other people that there's so much more to life than what it is that they perceive or what the world has told them is success or is achievement or is X, Y. So I like the sentiment. I can't stand it at the same time, but I like it because I, I believe that the only way we can really impact the amount of people that we want to inside of the rebellion is to be known. Has anybody walked up to you in the street and recognized you randomly outside of LinkedIn? So this is part of my story that a lot of people don't know is that I played in a band on Warner Brothers Records for a really long time as well, too. So the time I was 17 years old uh, was when I started touring. Uh, but I played in the band since I was like 15. And so my wife will tell you stories, you know, that we'll be sitting at dinner and some random person will come over and be like, yo, this is going to sound crazy, but are you the guy that played in this band? And they'll, you know, pull the album out on their phone or, you know, some people have even had it on them, which is crazy, right? Cause it's the year 2022. And the fact that somebody still has an old CD that I produced in 2007, 2010, right? Like that's a wild thought, but you kind of get that, but it is funny. It <laughs> It's way more funny when people go, are you Dale from LinkedIn? You know, like, that one gets me, but I do. I love my community on LinkedIn. So when I get that, I actually light up a little bit. When it came to the music side, it could be anybody. Like, like somebody could say, are you Dale? And I could say yes, and they could throw a punch at me. <laughs> so be, because of that scene and what music, what comes with music and and just, you know, in general, the the culture of it. But but yeah, it's kind of been something that's just generally happened in across the, the time span of my life. But I like the LinkedIn one because that people typically don't throw punches when they ask me if I'm down from LinkedIn. So, And it's weird building a following in a virtual world, right? I mean, in a sense, when everybody went remote and you got famous on a platform where people physically weren't interacting. Right. So that is, it's not like there were events though. Oh, it's, it Dale's here, right? I mean, you know, that's starting to happen more because you'll probably start doing more speaking and TEDx, whatever. So I have to ask, because I saw this in your profile, six years. What was the genre? What kind of band? You conveniently buy, you just put down singer. I like that. Yeah. I was a singer. Singer, baby. So I actually singer-songwriter, and I played a couple of different instruments. I wasn't good at the instruments that I played. And that's just you know me saying that. I took lessons, and you know, there were people that were better than me. So I opted to sing um, instead because I had a proficiency there. But the music was heavy metal. It was like out of this world, like rack your socks off. We'd, I'd come home from tour and my mom should be vacuuming and you could hear my album blasting through the speakers. She called it her cleaning music <laughs> when she would vacuum the house, right? So it was a pretty 
epic experience. There was a lot of things that I dealt with, promiscuity, drugs and alcohol sure. being the most prominent as well in that genre. One of my best friends that was in the band succumbed to, you know, some of the heavier, heavier, heavier stuff and caused me to kind of like re-look at my life even and my relationships and sit back and understand a little bit more for myself of as to what is most important. Is it this music, right? Or is it the people that are attracted to these things and that we're building it through and with? If I'm getting the years right here, you're 15 through 21-ish, right? Yeah. In this band. And a lot of other kids are going from high school into college or going into a trade or taking a job and you're doing this band thing and your mom's supporting it. And it looks like you were working for connectivity systems as well, connectivity businesses. So you had a job while you were in the band, while you're doing the same thing? I love these questions. These are the questions. Nobody asked this shit. So thank you. You bet, man. I was 21 when I decided to start working with connectivity business systems, which was my father's organization. I bought a house, uh, which was a duplex. So it was more or less just like a investment property, if you will. Yeah. And I needed something stable at that point. I had to prove income, you know, and not to say that we didn't make good money in the band. It was, it varied, you know, you're on a major record label. So you have a lot of recognition. There's a lot of people showing up, but you know, sometimes you come home and there'd be 500 bucks left over after everything was paid and you have to get back on the road pretty quick, but we did it for the love of music. Right. And so at 21, when I started selling copiers, I actually stayed in the band. I toured until I was probably about 23 or 24 technically. So I actually like did it alongside like as a, hustle while I was selling copiers. And then I also had a Friday night job and a weekend job. So I actually, I worked three jobs and then I had the music thing that I was still chasing to an extent, if you will. Um, and I, I like the word chasing for me personally, because it describes really where my heart was at, that it wasn't something I was starting to fall out of love with music the way that I had originally fallen in love with it. And that thing, what it was to me is it was like, oh, I don't have to go to school. I can pursue a, a dream and have a job through something that I was passionate about. But this sounds awesome. And okay, so as I started, you know, oh, so when I'm home, I might have to like have a secondary income to some extent, but, you know, it's just for a season basically. Yeah. And then I'm back out on the road doing my thing. And my mom and dad were extremely supportive. You know, you mentioned that earlier. My mom and dad were very supportive. They came to the first show before we went on tour in Orlando, uh, before we hit the road and showed their support for me. And there was a lot of things that happened to that crossroads in my life too. I had my band and then there was another band on Atlantic records that had seen me perform and had kind of like actually introduced themselves to me through social media so crazy thought that we had social media back in 2002 and 2003. Sure. It was called MySpace back then. <laughs> that was the big platform that we used. Nobody wants to admit it, but yeah. Yeah, right. Nobody. And Justin Timberlake, by the way, owns MySpace now in case anybody was wondering. That's oh, a crazy thought, right? By the way, he crushed, he crushed himself as Napster guy in the movie. Great movie. Great role. Yeah, he did a fantastic job. So I had a lot going on in my life during those years. And there was a lot of shakeup constantly happening in my life as well, too, where I was having to question myself, what are you doing this for? Is it for you? Is it for your legacy? Is it for your family? Is it for status? Is it for wealth? Is it for fame? What are you doing this for? Why are you continuing to do these things? I think the majority of the time, my mindset was that I loved people. I still do. Like I love people. I'm an extrovert. I love being around people. I love traveling. I love new city every night. Love 500 strange faces at a bar packed, you know, wall to wall, everybody beating the crap out of each other while we were playing. I mean, I, I loved 
those moments. I loved those instances, but there was also something in me selfishly that kind of said, you're doing this because eventually you'll be big lights, bright lights, big stage, massive audiences, you know, which we tasted during our careers well too, you know, it never hit the way I thought it would. And, and eventually I realized that a lot of the people that stay in music, they stay in it as an excuse because they don't really truly believe that they can do anything else other than music. And I sat back and said to Dale, yo, dude, you can do anything you want. And so what do you truly want? And and really at that crossroads of like 22, 23, it was that I wanted to, to love my wife. I wanted to be happy. I wanted to pursue self-development. And I wanted to be just in general, I wanted to be better simply. Those were the things that I had kind of realized for myself at that age. And it was probably about 23 or so that I just stopped playing with the band. I still did stuff. I'm not going to say I didn't do stuff like I shoot like five years ago. I recorded an album that no one's ever heard. It's literally, I flew up to North Carolina, recorded everything with my drummer. Him and I just did, we did it all vocals, guitars, bass, drums. And it's just sit on a laptop between me and him. So, well, I got to hear it now because I live in North <laughs> Carolina. So if it was recorded here, I got to hear it. It's got some North Carolina flavor. <laughs> I'll submit this, and that is that you're in the band. Like you said, you're chasing something. And I think when people join to pursue music, they know what that something is. But your parents supported you, which is highly unusual in that venture. You're working two or three jobs, nights and weekends. When you described to me at 22 or 23 that you said, hey, Dale, love your wife, go do anything, develop yourself, growth. I would venture that kids that go to college don't have that conversation with themselves till they're 30. You had more education in those five to seven years because you were out on your own dealing with some shit people don't deal with, the drugs, alcohol. By the way, 100% at your disposal, right? It was expected. So you got to grow up pretty quick. Walking back quickly, you said, you know, when did you get married? Let's touch on that. That's a big part of this story. When did that happen? We met at 17. She came out to one of my shows right before our first tour, and she stuck with me through all the crazy drama even some drama within the band of me like quitting. And at the same time, some of the members wanting me out, which was pretty convenient. Right. Right. Um, And then like reforming the band three or four months later, staying on our major record label at the time it was an indie label and then getting signed to a major record label. Like she stuck through all this with me. And at 21, we got married, which is actually, that's the point when I stopped touring full time. That was the point when I got the second job with my dad And really, truly, it was a full-time gig with him and nights and weekends were open. And then I, you know, he gave me some, essentially some vacation days, quote unquote, to be able to do my touring thing. He would put me in a draw in some instances as well, too, where it just, if I wanted to get paid that month, but it didn't work, I owed him $4,000, you know? So when I got to like commission check time, it was like, hey, buddy, you owe me, you owe me all this over here. So I'm going to take that, which I thought was very fair. And also it was good character. There was good character building in that because even though I I say out loud that I thought that it was fair, there was something in me that was just like, just give me the money, you know, at the same time too. And so I got, I learned very valuable lessons at this point in my life. I mean, I'm, I'm 18 years old at one point, you know, standing on stage in front of a thousand plus people, you know, in a dream situation, playing with a band, you know, I'm on this stage that I wasn't even supposed to be on that tour. Right. And there's major record labels, uh, indie record labels, other bands that I looked up to, all kinds of people at this show. And I felt like 
I had made it right to an extent. And then two or three days later, I'd say probably about 25, you know, 30 odd people in a room doing pretty heavy drugs, uh, just getting sloshed, you know, you know, from the alcohol standpoint as well too, like lots of liquor being passed around and lots of temptation in those rooms as well too. And lots of stupid decisions, you know, at the end of the day for myself and, and most of the people that were in them as well too. And then on top, bro, on top of all of that, I'm in this genre of music that's, typically pretty angry and i'm a follower of christ and my whole band like for me is based around if you go and buy or listen to because i really don't care if you buy my old album so even though i still get paid shout out to my distribution rights (laughs) (laughs) shameless plug we'll take it yeah right so if you if you look at my original albums if you read the lyrics they're pretty simple pretty short but they are a reflection of my depression and my journey as a christian and burying myself and my past and resurrecting as, as something new. And so you, there's a song even about my suicide attempt when I was a young man in my early teenage years on that album. And you can literally hear, you know, what I was going through. And so here I am like going through all these things and then on the road, just like literally surrounded by temptation and every facet, bro, every facet you can think of violence, drugs, women, you know, men at that too. Cause this is the thing is like when you're an artist, you know, it doesn't really matter like what you're into and what other people decide for you because of the influence of that, like what you're going to do tonight though, right. Is the thought process. And so there's a lot of manipulation. There's a, there's a lot of character building because of that, or you become a sheep <laughs> and, and that just wasn't my MO. I mean, well, I'm in a Christian band, right. We're in, we're in the middle. I'll never forget this, this one particular instance, right. We're playing, a show with a band called Deicide. You can look them up if you want. I, I uh, will caution you. They're pretty heavy. And they're also right. a satanic band. So they worship the devil. And Perfect for you. We played a show with these guys, right? Because I also wasn't was somebody that, that I wasn't going to be boxed in as a Christian. I wasn't. No way, dude. Like, you're not going to ever hear me say like, oh, we don't go to those places. We don't do those things because because these other people are that are doing it or that like these things, they're wrong. Sure. And I'm right. Sure. So here I am backstage with this band, just like having a beer, hanging out with them and like the literal opposite. It was one of those moments where I realized that because they were much older than us, too. They were in their late 30s and we were in our teens. Right. Like, you know, technically people that we could look up to. And so, and I learned a lot from them that night, regardless of whether it was moral or immoral, the things that they were doing backstage and the lifestyles they were living. I learned a lot from them. I got to get a really good perspective of what it would have looked like to spend a lot of time in a band and, you know, a, a decade in a band and to essentially create my own culture through those experiences and what, how that would be formed. So I know I got down like a a big rabbit hole there, but I mean, the story goes deep. It goes extremely deep. And there's, there are a lot of things that, you know, this is some people know about some people don't, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes to how people perceive me, I'm an open book. And, and I believe that a lot of my experiences can teach others, you know, the, the pros and cons, not just the good and the bad, but the pros and cons. And, and I'm a big believer of learning through others' experiences uh, my father allowed me to do it through him. My mentors allowed me to do it through them. My mother allowed me to do it through her. And it was less of like a, hey, don't do this because I did it and it failed. It was a, hey, let me tell you my story, right? Is the way that I learned, 
you know, the good from the bad in my walk. And the music side of it was, was a huge piece of the puzzle because you're right, bro. At 21, I'm getting married and I've probably, I've seen more, done more, heard more, experienced more than most 21 year old kids at this point. And I'm ready for something new, like literally at that point in my life, which is a pretty wild thought. <laughs> so when you mentioned your parents, I was blessed to have a pretty stable family and great parents when I grew up. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. But you said something really important. You know, They didn't ask you to correct the mistakes they made or prevent you from doing things because of the mistakes they made. They just said, here's my story. Take it, process it, do what you want with it. And that's very difficult for parents to do, right? I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to watch your kids fall on their face. The best parents let them their kids fall on their face. That's the only way they're going to learn. If you're there all the time, they never learn how to deal with conflict. But I'm curious about that moment we looked at this older band. And two things stood out to me. One, you recognize that's me in 10 years if I don't, if I don't make a, a pivot here. But two, you also recognized, and I think you were hinting at this, so I want you to explore it. You discovered you could relate to them. You could talk to them and agree to disagree on some things, but still be humans and you had to start thinking to yourself, I can do that, right? There's good in everyone. I mean, I don't, you're making bad decisions. I'm not here to judge you, but we can have a conversation. So there's a little bit of rebel in you, as we all know, but you mentioned you're a people person. So when did you start to shape this idea that said, I want to do something different. I want to love my wife. I want to be there for her. I want to grow. But when did you start to get the knack for this whole sales thing? How did that all come about? Is that when you started working for your dad, you started to realize, I, I'm good at this? Bro, that started at like eight years old Okay, when I was going to my dad's office and learning the business, you know, small business, child of a small business, right? I was learning it in that unique way where you get to see everything, experience everything, do everything, watch everything. And my dad taught me that life is sales. Sales is life. But there's no such thing as business versus personal. It's all personal. Uh, that there are lines to be drawn in certain instances around um, professionalism, for example. But but also my dad taught me, he said, he said, people will tell you that they subscribe to being professional and then they'll snort a line of Coke in the bathroom right in front of you, cheat on their wife that night and ask you to cover for them if their wife calls asking, looking for them. And then they'll steal from you, you know, the next day, yeah, like monetarily. And they'll tell you, no, but it's business, right? And my dad used to say, like, that's the quote unquote professional way, right? And so for me, like from the start, I was learning sales and I was learning the ins and outs of business from the perspective of the stereotypes, and so I just was cultured differently. So when people were like, you have to wear a suit and a tie, I'd say, why? I'm sorry, excuse me, but like, why do I have to wear a suit and a tie? Because this is business and that's professional. You know, like literally blow it out your rear. Because yeah. to me, that's a it's a really good way to sauce up and make something look very decent or desirable when it's not in reality. Yeah. And it's a way to manipulate, it's a way to control, and it's a way to create outcomes that that help you and nobody else. So when I was selling in my band, even, you know, it was very natural. If I showed up at a show and there was, you know, a couple hundred kids or 10 or a couple thousand, it didn't matter, right? I could walk out in that crowd and I'd walk around and start meeting people and be like, hey, what's up? I'm Dale. I play in Imperial. And not to be like, I play in Imperial, but just like, what do you guys do? Are you guys from here? Are you in a band too? Oh, no, we just came out. Who'd you come out to see? Oh, we came out to see Still Remains or 
bleeding through or whatever cool name drop I can give real quick. And, you know, I would be like, that's awesome. So, you know, we got a new album that, you know, got recorded by Jeremy Stoska. He was the guy that did Marilyn Manson, Newfound Glory. And, you know, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You know, we're only selling them for five bucks. You know, you want to grab one or, you know, and so I was learning even the transactional side of sales to an extent at that point in my life too, which I think is very important for people to hear me say, because a lot of people know Dale is like this very relationship oriented, very experience driven person. But I also learned both sides. That's why I became so good at sales because I recognized and realized that being a transaction is, is a short term, you know, outlook. And, and I wanted to create a lasting legacy, uh, you know, which molded me even further. So by the time, you know, I was coming out of the band and, or, or even when I was, as a hybrid playing in the band and selling copiers, you know, life was interesting because I was, I was kind of learning two different sides of the fence when it came to like professions. And then I was, I was, like I said, I had a weekend job and I had a Friday night job. I was bar backing at my mother-in-law's bar in Sanford, Florida. It was a blues bar by a bunch of bikers and fighting and debauchery. And then, and then I was I was serving at a wedding venue. Shout out to Laura Ritzy, who's an awesome human being and employed me for a while and was like, you know, a huge part of my own development. And, you know, part of that personal responsibility piece that I learned because she held me accountable to being on time and to doing a very good job. Just like my dad did too, but I was very hands-on with strangers in those roles, as you can tell, right? From like playing music to bartending, weddings to bar backing, a random blues bar in Sanford, And so when I started to get the hang of selling copiers, it was because naturally I tapped into these things that I had been learning, which was like how to communicate with people, how to accommodate people, how to not be manipulative, but how to like really create true connections that can be, you know, essentially that can create life partners, you know, out of other people and not and strictly platonic, right? Like you don't have to like romance every single human that you, that you meet. You can exclusively save that for your one and only, but you can still love people a tremendous amount and spend your life with those people as well too, you know, from the perspective of what I was learning and earning and gaining through experience. And so at a young age, again, like at 24 years old, I looked at people as very important. And I looked at myself because of that as very important too. And the journey had just begun. And it, I mean, it definitely took lots of twists and turns in those those times as well too. But I mean, I broke through and started making six figures a few years later. And it, it started like the first year I made six figures. A lot of people like crack a hundred and they're like, yo, that's dope. I cracked like 180 my first year of going from like 60,000 to the next. And after that it was 250 and then it was 300. And I mean, it just kept going every year. It got better. And what I realized and in, in the monetary side of what I was gaining is that it wasn't because I was good at selling stuff and that people demanded to have a copy machine in their office. It was because I was building a legacy. It was because I was also accommodating to the legacy that other people are leaving, the story they want to tell, and how I fit into that journey and accommodated those people. So I became not just their copier salesperson, I became their buddy. Mm-hmm. First of all, I'm not going to stay in music. There's another way to develop Dale, the person. When you sat down and talked to your wife, you're a young couple, right? I mean, you're, you guys are in your early 20s. And you said to her, I want to stop the band and I want to go do something else. What was her reaction? Was she like, oh, Dale, you can stick it out. Or I've been waiting for you to tell me this. Or I see someone kind of where was her at? And you guys obviously have a very great you know, relationship, strong partners. How did you begin this new journey together? Yeah, man, my wife is my rock. Right. She inspires me. 
she just loved me through thick and thin unconditionally and like on a level that I almost can't even comprehend, Yeah, which is powerful. You know, I actually, I looked at the kind of love that she had for me almost the same as like the kind of love my dad had for me and my mom had for me just, you know, on another level from the perspective of the connection and I'm physical with my wife. I just want to put that out there. Like I have sexual relations with my wife, not with my mom and dad. So that also elevates the relationship as well too, to a, <laughs> to a level of understanding. Thank God, by the way, this is a whole different <laughs> podcast. <laughs> We just went to the next level, dude. <laughs> well, we should fire up some heavy metal music and get into that conversation. Let's let's yeah, go. We should. We should. <laughs> so the thing that the reason I mentioned that is because I think a lot of people take things like that for granted. They look at something like being physical with another human and they look at it as like pleasure, right? Where I look at it as connection and love and like ultimately one of the most beautiful things that you can create with somebody. It's never been anything more than that to me. And it's why I've been able to create such a good outcome with my wife at the end of the day is that I'm connected with her beyond what most people can comprehend in regards to love. And I'm super grateful and blessed with that, but it doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that there's not darkness involved, you know, in that relationship as well too. So like, I'll tell you straight up my wife, like through throughout the entire existence of our relationship, I have always come to her with just terrible things like, Hey, I'm going to quit my job that I'm making very high six figures and, you know, should as well just be called seven figures at this stage. And, and then I'm going to start my own company. By the way, we don't have an income after I do that. And it's probably going to take some time to get things ramped up. And, you know, so probably like three or four months before we get going. And then I don't know what'll happen after that. Then, you know, and my wife like is literally pregnant Sorry, she just had our son. He's like, at this stage, he's like two years old, I think. And she's just like, look, she's like <laughs> looking at me with those same eyes that she gave me when we were 21, 22, and we were making big life choices and just said, I trust you. And that's what she's always been for me throughout the process. So I'm grateful to have it. I, a lot of times I tell these stories and people say, man, I don't have that. A lot of people I tell the times I tell the stories of my father and people go, man, I didn't have that. A lot of the time I tell stories about just my general experiences and people go, man, I don't have that. And, and I don't hear, yeah, well, I'm just different. I had a different walk in those moments. I hear, gosh, I am extremely privileged. Right. So, so my, my wife and I's relationship is next level and we are always taking it to the next level. I mean, we're 19 years together this year in August. And I'm still every year I'm trying to figure out like, what could we do different? What's next? What are we going to change? I mean, where I'm at right now in Tennessee, living in someone else's cabin while mine gets, my dream home gets built, which is going to be the smallest house you ever saw in your life, by the way, all these choices, right. That we're in right now that my wife and I are in to uproot ourselves of 36 years in one single place are all based around the fact that there is nothing more important in this world to me than her. And and I hope she feels the same way. And the thing is, is that that side of me, like the, the guy that says, I hope is the, is the Dale that still struggles with things like doubt and depression, because deep down inside, I really, truly know she feels that same way. And it's what drives me to be better and to continue to do what I do. So I've got a great support system in my spouse. There are people listening to this are going to go, man, I don't have that. I emphasize with them. I feel for them. My wife and I moved away from the Midwest where we were both born and raised with two kids, one who had just been born and had gone through a very serious medical condition, almost didn't make it to California. And I will tell you that those moments alone where we have to form our own relationship as a couple and rely on each other and that support system is is no longer there. 
they're still there, but they're farther away, right? You have to just figure out your own family identity. And my wife has risen to that occasion. There are times we've moved a lot where one of our moves, I wasn't good with it. And I drove it. I mean, it was for work. And she grabbed me by the cheeks one day and said, we got this. I'm going to make this work. And I looked at her, I'm like, how the heck did you just, you know, you should be smacking me upside the head. And here you are stepping up to the plate and owning it. So there's a lot of luck to it, Dale, right? But the bottom line is you put in it and you get out of it, right? When you put into your relationship, you get back out. So it's not like you got lucky and married the ace in the hole. You both work at it. There's challenging days, there's good days, there's bad days. But you have to work at that relationship all the time. I agree, bro. You put it on Christ too, right? I mean, if you can keep God at the center of your relationship, of course. you said something very interesting. My wife would wholeheartedly agree. Honestly, don't know that I've heard another man say the way you said it. My wife is like, look, physical isn't about pleasure for me. It's about intimacy. So if you just touch my hair before you go to bed or sit next to me and hold my hand at night, just letting me know that I'm there and we're connected, sometimes that's all she needs. And it's difficult for guys to remember that it's not, we have this, we have different goals sometimes. It's great. And if you can put God at the center of your relationship, good things happen. Yeah, dude. I totally agree. I, I've watched a lot of my friends and just in general, people fail inside of their marriages. And listen, if you're out there and you're somebody that's failed in your marriage, this is not a slight at you. It doesn't mean that somehow you're lesser than what I have by any means. But I have always been a guy that's been able to look at that and and really create a micro around the moments. And I can literally see how I could fall out of love with my wife. I can see how I could become someone that doesn't cherish her. And because I have that mode where I'm aware and I'm able to understand like, wow, this is probably why people stop, or I should say cease to be attracted to their spouse. You know, these micros, these small things, these things we bottle up inside that we never tell anybody. For men, it's things like the struggle with porn and not necessarily even like looking at pornography, but like going through Instagram and seeing like one of their friend's friends in a bikini or some girl they work with, you know, scantily clad dancing on the table or things that we have access to just the same as well too, then, you know, things that might be at a distance or hands off. We as men are very, we're primal creatures, right? Like we are driven by physicality and by sex in most cases as well too. Not every man, I shouldn't say that because I've met some that are just like, basically just be asexual. I don't even understand their existence. But, you know, again, if we realize some of those particular truths, then we can understand why, just like what I told you earlier, that like when I was on tour, that it wasn't like, oh, you don't like heroin? That's okay. You don't have to do it. It was like, no, 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 my friend, we do that. And we do all the other drugs too. We do them all, right? So the same concept applies you know, when you're building a culture with your wife of intimacy and of something that goes beyond love, I love the word cherish. I think that if we can think more about cherishing our spouse and the person that we love in our life, that it helps us to see things a lot differently that like, you know, one of you gets a little overweight, there's no condemnation in that. If anything, like there's a conversation in there that says, Hey, I'm good with this, by the way. <laughs> like, I love your, your cute little, you know, love handles, Dale, because you're, eating way too many cheeseburgers. Those are great conversations to have, but also to say, are you okay with it? Are you okay with this? That's the big question. That's a huge piece of the puzzle. That's... And and that, that goes toward everything in life that most people are afraid to really have a conversation around when it comes to preference and when it comes to, you know, what we're living out 
And I think a lot of the time we can't disconnect from those small things and we have a hard time asking questions like that. And because of it, we fail. It's really easy for people to fall out of love. That's the bottom line. It's really easy. This is something that we have to work toward. Just like when you start selling and becoming successful, you can't just walk away from that. If you walk away from that, even if it lasts for 10 more years, you know, that success and that wealth, it's going to come to a screeching halt at some point because you stopped putting in the effort, the work and took your focus off of the things that truly mattered and became a robot in the process. And that's, I think those are some of the keys to, to happiness. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, backing it by some of the things you described earlier as Christians, you know, we have to acknowledge the fact that we are primal beasts and, you know, there are carnal things that show up in our lives. And I think marriage is, uh, as you described it, is two important factors. Intentionality, right? You have to come to the table every day, bringing your best and willing to sacrifice. The other thing is knowing when not put yourself in certain situations, right? So that's one thing I learned early on in my career by traveling a lot is, I recognize that the guys that went down to the bar after work every night, bad things happen. You can't do that. I was up in my room, went to bed, and you know, got up the next morning and worked out. That was a habit I formed. Like I'm not going to put myself in that situation. And I'm not going to tempt myself with that. And by the way, getting up early to exercise makes me a better husband and a father and all those things as well. So you have these trade-offs, but you're right. It's the little things. And you just described it. it can, you can fall out if you don't pay attention every day because, uh you know, I don't care about this and uh, Dale gained 50 pounds. Maybe I don't care now. But then in five years, Dale's really unhappy. And now I wonder why I'm not attracted to Dale's because Dale hates himself, right? And we should have had that discussion earlier. Like, Dale, what's really going on here? I love you no matter how you are, but if you're not happy, this is going to be difficult. One of the things, and I've shared this in other podcasts, my wife and I have done effectively is when we reach a point where we're not on the same page, right? It happens, right? I'm feeling like this or saying this and she's here and we recognize it. We'll write each other a letter, literally sit down and write a letter saying, here's how I'm feeling. Here's what I'm thinking. And then that person can read it on their own time away from the emotional part of the discussion and go, huh, I didn't realize that's what Julie was thinking. Holy shit. I just completely missed that. But it makes perfect sense. Right. And, and so everybody has their own communication style. It's worked effectively for us. I'm sure it may not be the right thing to do for other people, but you have to bring it every day. So let's fast forward here a little, Dale. You have a son. How old is your son now? He's four years old. Four years old. That is an awesome age. <laughs> is he a Star Wars fan? Yes, he is. But he's also like really into dinosaurs and monster trucks. And so he should be. He's four. Right. I think that that actually like makes me happier. Like, not that, like, he doesn't, it's like, I'm a huge Star Wars nerd, right? I mean, I have a shirt on right now, of a bunch of Ewoks kicking a bunch of stormtroopers off the side of a cliff, like they're from that movie 300. I have lightsabers behind me. <laughs> I see them. On the wall behind me. I see them. I'm jealous yeah. of them. I want them. So They're pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So as a young man, a young adult, I think I always in my head thought, cool, I'll have kids. They'll be just like me. They'll like the same stuff I like, blah, blah, blah. I think that's kind of like everybody's like dream to an extent. But at the same time, I realize that what really makes me happy is seeing him excited, bought in, and doing things that he loves. And what I see in that actually is a realization of like how good I had it as a child as well, too, because my dad was never like, huh, you want to paint your, your fingernails black and listen to emo metal music? That's weird. You know, he was like, cool. Want me to help you get the nail polish? 
to me where my son is right now and the things that I'm witnessing around like his likes and dislikes, even though I'm not like into, I've never known what a monster truck was, bro. Until I had a son, it was not, I wasn't a, that kind of kid. Right. But I'm, yeah. I'm like trying to figure out how to like it with him, you know, like, Oh yeah, I'm definitely going to, I'm going to be able to do this with you. That's my, my thought. Right. So yeah, I mean, he's a cool dude though. He holds me accountable to a lot of things and he gives me, He's given me an amazing life over the course of the last four years and and truly changed my outlook and the trajectory of my success. There's no greater joy than being a father, in my opinion. No greater joy. Amen, bro. Behind marrying my wife, they know that the three best days of my life were the three days my kids were born. And you made a really good point. When you try to program your kids to be who you think they should be, that's an instant recipe for turning them into something they shouldn't be, right? If you let them just explore monster trucks or painting their nail, I mean, kids are kids. They're going to try a bunch of different stuff. And it doesn't mean that they're going to be a monster truck fan for the rest of their lives. And maybe they will, who knows? But in two years, it could be, hey, dad, I want to try karate. Or I really want to take up piano. Or you are in a metal band. I want to learn how to play slide guitar. I mean, who knows what it's going to be? It sounds like your dad did a great job of giving you the ability to explore those talents and and let you be your own man because now you're translating that as a father to your son. Truth. And yes, you're dead right. My dad was a, a genius human being and Hindi did. He allowed me to make my choices through a matter of influence, but also that influence was mine, you know, just as much as it was something that he was helping me to understand for myself, right? Because they were my choices. So when you lay down at night, put your head on the pillow and you think to yourself, all right, Dale, good day. What are you thinking about? There's there's something in the back of your head that's going, the sales rebellion is awesome. You've run a new CEO in which mad props for recognizing the right roles there. But what is the what's the idea in the back of your head? What's the problem that needs to be solved that you're wrestling with? Well, let's start here. Like when I when I lay down and go to bed, first off, I because of my struggles with depression, and actually you know, praise God, the last five months of my life I have been I believe set free from that's that ultimate sadness, even though I feel it, I don't feel suicidal. I don't feel like on the brink um, as I have like most of my life. But when I go to bed at night, you know, traditionally, no matter what, even in the state of being very much healed at this point in my walk, that there's still a lot of things that go through my head, which are tomorrow when you wake up, is everything going to be okay? That's like probably one of the first things that, it's very consistent in my life that goes through my head. A lot of people get caught up in, did I do this okay? Did I do that okay? Did I finish this? Did I finish that? I don't actually get caught up in that stuff. And I think the reason that that happens for me is because, you know, I've held people in my arms as they died. I've tried to take my own life. And the only thing that stopped that was my mom in one instance, you know, basically coming home and keeping it from being finished. I can't even imagine what it'd be like to be a parent, you know, watching your son slit his wrists. And, and to me, like there are that going to that deep, dark bottom has caused me to look at life a lot differently than, than most people. And because of it, I don't sweat the small stuff. I don't think too much about every little thing, which could be, you know, to an extent, it can also be a uh, part of my downfall, right? It's like one of the reasons why I recognize that I suck as a CEO and that I needed to to bring in a CEO to the organization to properly run it. Because mm-hmm. even though I'm, I'm willing to do the work and uh, to be the guy that does everything, <laughs> that I also, I'm better at being a salesperson. I'm better at, at being a coach. I'm better at being Dale Dupree and, and not, you know, faking, 
my way to the top. And I've never wanted to do anything like that and never really been tempted by that either. So it was a very easy decision, by the way, for me to just step out and step back. But really look at the success of a day, like every day when I go to bed and feel good, isn't like, oh man, I'm so happy that I'm not the CEO anymore. That makes me feel really good. Well, that decision came and went and it, and is gone. Like the day I decided to do it was the last day I thought about it. <laughs> and really now I just use it as part of my story to help encourage other people to understand that you shouldn't be embarrassed. You shouldn't be worried about failure. You shouldn't be worried about what other people think. You should be worried about how people are affected by your actions. And so that's really the the root cause of why I think tomorrow is everything going to be okay. Are you going to be okay? Are people that you're serving going to be okay? Are the people in your organization going to be okay? Because I, I live my life based around <laughs> this identity of servant leadership, but the only reason that I've been able to find servant leadership is because of my deep, dark sadness. And that servant leadership is the only thing that really brings me joy, you know, outside of obviously my, my wife and my family and things that make me happy deep down inside. There's a thing that nags at me constantly that says, just be the old Dale, just get back to the anger, get back to the temptation, get back to the addictions, get back to the things that made you feel extraordinarily good because you know, wow, Dale, good for you. You you're you've cleaned up and done all these great things, but are you are you happy, Dale? And that's my depression speaking more than anything. It's a liar. <laughs> and and it's but it's hard, you know, to see those things. And so, you know, for the most part, when I go to bed, there's not a million things racing through it. There's just one. And it's that. Is tomorrow gonna be okay? You carry a lot of weight on your shoulders when you go to bed at night, right? For sure. So What's your outlet with that, Dale? How do you get through that? Is it talking to your wife and sharing how you're feeling and, and saying, this is, this is what I'm thinking? And, or do you, do you internalize it? Do you then process it the next day? Is that how you fight that demon? What's the best way for you to work through it? Go to God, man. I tell anybody that's listening to, the, to, to me talk about this kind of stuff. I say, first and foremost, yeah, like your, your spouse support is, is huge. Like if you can just, because sometimes we just need to speak out loud, like what's going on and where we're at. And your spouse should be the person that can take that information and not be like, oh my God, you know, going to her girlfriends or, you know, like gossiping or like, and, and I'm so blessed and privileged to have a wife that is that, you know, you, you'll never see her looking for, for attention or doing things behind my back like that, you know, that are so, that are so acceptable in social circles and in, in most successful quote unquote relationships, because that's the way that the world defines it. But having that spouse to go and speak to it, that will listen, you know, that's a huge piece of the puzzle. I'll be honest. My dad was that for me until he passed away in 2016. I could go to him with everything. He knew all my darkest, deepest, most terrible secrets. And it was so nice to be able to say that they weren't secrets anymore. It healed me, right? Having him in my life healed me extraordinarily well. But the ultimate freedom is found in God. And a lot of people have a hard time with that just that general thought, like what God, you know, is what I hear people say all the time. And I accept that other people, you know, they're not on the same level as me in regards to a connection spiritually, and that it's hard for some people to find that connection. But what I don't accept is people settling for that type of outlook. 
and just saying like, yeah, you know, I've tried it and it just doesn't work because I'll tell you straight up that the reason that people are the way that they are around those things is because they can't do things like go on a podcast and tell people the things that I just did to you. Instead, they hold those things deep inside and they blame God for those things if he exists. Right. And to me, like that is the biggest travesty is that a lot of the time that we look at like, how do I fix this? And we think pills or a professional that I can speak to. And there's nothing wrong with going to a psychiatrist. And I have experienced the effect of what that can be on your life. And and it can be a very positive thing. But at the same time, like trusting man, right? The same thing that you don't even trust in the first place to fix such a deep, dark seated issue. It's really, you know, just, it kind of feels asinine to me. So that relationship with God, going to God and really pursuing, you know, something bigger than yourself is what will really open your eyes to how small your problems truly are. And I don't mean that to belittle or demean any, anybody that's listening that might think that that's what it sounds like. Please know that it doesn't, but that I just woke up one day and realized, wow, what a, what a fantastic world I live in. What a great life I have. And these problems, I can minimize them even further if I just take it to the cross. You know, that's why it's called faith, because you have to have faith. And by the way, it's a journey. Everyone's on their own faith journey. And the thought process of perspective, right? Nobody can ascertain what somebody else's problems mean to them, but you can certainly do that for yourself. So as you think about your life and you talk to God, and by the way, sometimes just talk to God. Just literally say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you help me figure it out? And it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a burning bush the next day. But you would be amazed if you actually put faith, real faith, when you have those conversations, doors close, doors open, you'll find peace. And you may not even, you almost have to look back and go, holy cow, I was really concerned about that 36 hours ago. It's not an issue anymore. How'd that happen? And those little miracles, he's not acting on our will, he's acting on his. And sometimes it's hard to let that go. But God will get you in a place where he, he needs you and wants you to be. It's just hard to, hard to figure that out. First of all, just for the listeners, we sat down and talked about what we really want to talk about. Dale's been on over 300 podcasts, so it's hard to find something that he hasn't talked about. But I told him, well, this show's a little different. We're not going to go to the LinkedIn profile and get on the surface. We're going to go a little deeper. And, and dude, you, you delivered this excellent, excellent episode. I'm going to reach out again for season three or four and, and, and just check in because you're building a new place. You're building a new life. Who knows where the sales rebellion is going to be in a couple of years, but I enjoy your content. It's real. And it's been an honor to have you in the program, my friend. Yeah, dude. Thanks for having me. Seriously. It means a lot. And you know, regardless of the number of podcasts that I've been on, I personally believe that time is the most important thing that we give to each other. So I look at each one as a very important gift. And so thank you, Pete. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak to your listeners. I appreciate that. And I will be throwing on Imperial during my next workout. Let's go. <laughs> I'll let you know how it goes. If I throw my back out, I'm never listening to you again. <laughs> All right, Dale. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And good luck with the house. Appreciate you, bro. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video. 